Now, as they wrap her in this, like, thing, uh, the Phoenix says that she is scheduled for termination and that now, with the apprehension of Monet, the second generation next mutants have been successfully apprehended. Fade to black. Boom. Welcome to Smells Like Teen Mutants. This is a carefree black nerd walk down memory lane. <laughs> Join me, your host, Rain Coleman, as I revisit my all-time favorite book, my favorite band of merry, misunderstood, misfit teens of the 90s, Generation X. Does it still hold up, or is it nostalgia keeping this as my very favorite all-time top three top one favorite comic now sit back relax and load up on guns bring your friends as we start this journey through generation x with the phalanx covenant part one encounter uh your reading for this episode will be uncanny x-men issue number 316. now the creative team for this issue um and some of the names i'm going to butcher my apologies in advance uh the writer scott labdell the artist joe Mardier, Mardier, i'll go with that inked by terry austin and dan green color artist steve buchalado buchalado yep letters by chris mm, La Paula, yeah, Chris E. We're gonna go with Chris E. And the editor is Bob Harris. Now, Generation X has always been a favorite of mine. Uh, Generation X has was like my new mutants, my X Factor, my X Men. You know, X Men have kind of come along in different waves for different generations, and my pre adolescent, adolescent life hit right as this book was getting big. Now, before getting started, where are we in the story? So before this issue opens, the first part of the story is Generation Next, the Phalanx Covenant crossover, and all of the X-Books. There are a few issues of note, uh, one of which Uncanny X-Men 313, shout out Detroit, Storm and Gambit have both seen the Phalanx. Now, uh, who or what is the Phalanx? <clears throat> The phalanx are cybernetic species. They form a hive mind, linking each member by a telepathy-like system. The phalanx on Earth were formed by a group of mutant-hating humans who voluntarily infected themselves with the transmode virus, taken from the ashes of Warlock, a renegade excuse me, technarch who had joined the New Mutants. Now, when organic life forms are infected with the Technarchy's techno-organic transmode virus, the phalanx are formed. They pass through a life cycle attempting to infect others before reaching critical mass. At that time, by a hard-wired instruction, they build a Babel Spire to contact the Technarchy. The Technarchy, who consider the phalanx abominations, invariably destroy the phalanx nest usually by converting the entire planet into a techno-organic matter and draining its energy. Woo! <laughs> That's heavy. <laughs> so now that we know what the phalanx is, we can understand the stakes for this story. Now please put a pin in that. They will show up here pretty soon. 
Now, other things of note before diving into this story are Sean Cassidy, a.k.a. Banshee. He is a former X-Man who recently returned from the Canary Islands. He came back to the X-Men community in this second series of X-Men, issue 24. He did this in order to spend more time with Moira McTaggart. Also, Uncanny X-Men's issues 281 through 283, Emma Frost, the White Queen, was taken into custody of the X-Men following a battle with Trevor Fitzroy. Uh, back in Uncanny X-Men issue number 314, Emma telepathically possessed Iceman. And we, if you want to take a couple steps back a little further than that, this is this will matter as well. But Emma also possessed Aurora Monroe. Storm. She possessed her body back in Uncanny X-Men issues 151 through 152. This was done in an attempt to infiltrate and capture the X-Men, which it was successful. Now, another event of note from issue 314 is that Emma learned that the fate of her former students, the Hellions, which we won't talk about them too much here, but we will get more into them in a later episode. Just know that Emma Frost had a group of mutants, young mutant students who are currently dead at this time. They were, in fact, murdered. Yeah, this story gets heavier and heavier. So another person of note is Victor Creed, a.k.a. Sabretooth. He showed up in the X-Men mansion seeking help and rehabilitation back in X-Men Unlimited issue 3. This was of the first series. Now, Scott and Gene Summers, they you may know them as Cyclops and Phoenix or maybe Marvel Girl, depending on what your familiarity is with the X-Men. Now, they had spent their honeymoon in the future. Now, mind you, this is 1994. Now, in continuity, in comics, I'm not sure of the year. I would imagine we're somewhere around 94, but in publication history, we're in 94. So, uh, they spent their honeymoon in the future, and this was told in a miniseries called The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix. In this series, Scott and Jean spent years raising their Scott's son, not their son, Scott's son. You guys may know him as Cable. Now, together, they destroyed Apocalypse, and following Apocalypse's death, the, both Scott and Jean were sent back to the present, which is technically the past of this timeline. <sighs> when it comes to X-Men and timelines, boy, mm, it is enough to send you give you a headache <laughs> so now that we're all caught up on where the story is before the issue opens we open up on monaco now i love this issue because it is very much a horror story with a slight slow burn we open up on an evening limousine ride up the mountainside in monaco this is where we meet colonel and former mi6 director gail cord becker and she's with a young Algerian woman. They're both in the backseat of a limo, which I have to say right off the rip, I love the artwork in this issue. The artwork is freaking phenomenal. Now, Gail is pleading with this young girl. We find out her name is Monet St. Croix. She does not speak. She's mute for some reason. We're not entirely sure why. Now, the lady says she's kind of begging to her. Gail is like, hey, I understand that your father's upset, especially after what happened to the twins and to your brother, but he cannot go on pretending that you don't need help. So, my little kid brain back then was like, hmm, okay, either I'm missing something or I need to stay tuned for what's to come because they don't say what exactly happened. We just know something, something went on. 
So Gail tells Monet that she suggested that her father send her to this old, good old English chap over in the States. Uh, and Xavier is his name, and he has a school exclusively for gifted youngsters. They would love for her to attend, which back then it was like, oh shit, she's going to be part of the X-Men. But now as an adult, I'm like, how much did we know about this school? We being like the human population for Gail to be like, yeah, he has a gifted school. Like at this point, is it unknown to the world at large that this is a mutant school is it that we're in another country is it that they've just they being uh gail has like wrecked her brain with so many different things that could help monet that this is like the last straw i wonder <laughs> so if you have any idea let me know use the hashtag sll oh excuse me smells like team mutants <laughs> sltm pod and let me know uh what your thoughts are if you have any like inside baseball information because again though i love this series i read it through as a kid as an adult i'm revisiting it and we're gonna have to learn together <laughs> so a car accident happens so the tire blows in the limousine they're spiraling out of control the uh limo driver is knocked out we can assume maybe he's dead then all of a sudden this phoenix, which we discussed before, attacks the limo. Now they look at, they take stake or take stock of what's going on. They do not see Gail as a threat. I love that Gail is like, oh, you don't think I'm a threat? She shoves Monet out of the car. She pulls out her gun and she gets to firing. You see these big blam, 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 blam <laughs> on the panel. And I love that. And it, I love it especially because we get the kind of perspective of Monet who's zoned out this entire time. She's not a regular girl. Of course, she's not speaking. She's very uh, relaxed. She's very kind of spaced out where things are happening to her. But she's not reacting to uh, to the things. There's no stimuli. So the phalanx say that they are <clears throat> when this after they approach Monet. We are unable to execute biocentric scan at this time due to intense level of psionic interference, <laughs> and that this evidence supports the collective intelligence's theory that Monet may be the most powerful of the next generation of Homo superior. <laughs> So apparently we we off the rip we find out that Monet is strong as the shit. Like we know that she's powerful. Now as they wrap her in this like ball cocoon like this thing, uh, the Phoenix says that she is scheduled for termination, and that now with the apprehension of Monet, the second generation next mutants have been successfully apprehended. Fade to black. Boom! What a way to open up an issue. Uh, another thing that's very interesting to me, again, if you look at comics now, 2019, 2020, and you see that the X-Men have been through a bunch of shit. There's a mutant every time you turn a corner across the street. And at, it's hard to think of a time when the mutants were actually in control. And when I say in control, I mean, you could count, oh, there are 162 mutants or there are only 17 or whatever. And I say that because now there's so many books with so many mutants. Hell, look at the state of Krakoa now. To say that Monet apprehending her, you finally have the second generation of next of mutants. It's like they couldn't have had but a handful, which we find out they only had a handful of mutants. Man. Okay, so we uh, move on to the United States. At the Professor X School for Gifted Youngsters in Salem, New York, New York City, Banshee, Sean Cassidy, has returned from his long weekend in Massachusetts. 
he finds himself checking on a tied up Emma Frost. Emma is struggling to free herself from the restraints holding her in this futuristic hospital bed. Sean tells her to calm down and he tells her that no one is going to hurt her and that she is only hurting herself. So I do like this as well. So one, the artwork is amazing, but we get this full page spread of Sean kind of just standing over observing her and Emma is acting wildly, so to speak. She's restrained. There's like a device doohickey on her head, on her forehead, on her temples, kind of, well, I would imagine controlling her because she is a telepath and she's restrained. She... This is the 90s, so she's very, I'll say, sexy. Uh, she has a skin-tight green outfit. Her breasts are up, back is arched for whatever reason. Like it's, I could almost excuse this because if you're struggling to get free, you know, you're moving your body in such a way that, you know, shit happens. But this is the 90s. There's only so much leeway I'm going to give you. So the two people who are watching over her are none other than Storm and Bobby Iceman. And so Sean is like, man, I don't know if this is a good idea. Like, after all the shit that they went through, is it a good idea for Emma to be the one who's being watched over by them? Especially because she's yelling about them trying to kill her and, you know, all this, all this other shit. So Banshee wonders, like I said, are they the best choices for this task? Now, after this happens, there is like some shock or something that happens where she gets kind of knocked out. And Storm <clears throat> escorts Banshee out of the medical bay or wherever they are. Now, this is exactly why I say that this is a horror story with a slow burn. Because we can feel through Sean that something is off here. Now, the folks we have grown to love are not behaving in a way that you would think is normal. But even if you're new to the X-Men, new to the books, new to all of this, and you see this, and this is normal because it's your first interaction with them, Sean being your entry point character and his confusion is easily understood, even for childhood me, understood that Bob, that Iceman and Storm's behavior is a bit off. Now, but to play the devil's advocate, we can... I wonder if, and I'm saying I wonder because I have history with these characters and these books, I wonder if you can really trust Sean as the protagonist of this story. Because he himself had said earlier that he didn't want to butt in um, into the day-to-day -day decisions that were going on around the mansion, since he is no longer an X-Men. Even though he recognizes that Bobby and Aurora have been burned by Emma, to say the least. And he uh, cited the incident, excuse me, events of Uncanny X-Men 314 and 151 when she possessed both Bobby and Storm. Now, even though we can agree that something is odd might be going on, is it truly odd? Or is it Sean being the protagonist? Is it his projections, his insecurities about his situation? Is that what we're getting? You know, so I really like that. I really like this. Uh, especially if you're brand new, you really don't, you trust him because he's telling the story, but could you really trust him? Now, after he gets thrown out by Storm, uh, a call comes in. It's a priority call. And I want to take this time to remind you that we are knees deep in 90s, 1994 to be exact, 90s, everything. Now, with this science fiction, action, adventure, soap opera-ness of it all, there are no cell phones. So a lot of the things that we think might be silly decisions or could be easily solved by the tools that we have now are not even around. So keep that in mind as we go through this story. 
Uh, now, this priority call is being made on this huge screen in the X-Mansion's control room. Now, for those of you who remember the 90s X-Men animated series, you know what I'm talking about. That big screen. But even if you didn't watch that, there have any cartoon from the 90s, late 80s, 90s, that had, like, I think uh, Ninja Turtles Shredder had a uh, big screen like that. Power Rangers, though they had that command center with Zordon's head in a tube, it's essentially the same setup. A big screen with a, a jumbo-sized imaging. <laughs> so, Sean answers the call, and he's thinking about his hurt feelings. He's like, man, you know what? I don't know. You know, maybe I could let this go. So when he does uh, answer the call, it's Scott and Jean. This is after their honeymoon. This is them in the present now. And Cyclops asks to speak with the professor. Now, they may have found some information that would help them to cure the legacy virus. The legacy virus, to my understanding, was an analog for AIDS back then. It only affected mutants until it didn't. And they found this uh, this information that can help with the cure. So Banshee, he's happy. He's like, okay, I'm speaking to my friends. He's like, hey, y'all, you know, professor, he's on Muir Island. That's where Maura McTaggart works and lives and whatnot. So he asks the two lovebirds, how was their honeymoon? Hey, guys, how was everything? So Gene says, well, it's complicated. Again, alluding to that miniseries where they raised Scott's kid in the future. Like, <laughs> I think it was, I want to say it was a four-issue miniseries. Uh, so soon after, Angel, Archangel, I don't know what he's going by now, but Angel comes in and he's like, He's angry. He swoops down after the call is disconnected. He's like, why the hell are you here? Uh, you don't need... To, who Who the fuck was that on the phone? What are you doing answering the phone here? And another thing I like about this is that Sean already had reservations about butting in and being in this space because he's no longer an X-Men. And X-Men have always been some family of mismatched misfits. They've always been this chosen family where everybody doesn't get along some people are you know in relationships and whatnot but it's always been a home to people so for him to have these insecurities it should have been i'm coming here to open and welcome arms how it normally is but you have these insecurities that could have been tamed by a friendly face but then you get here and everybody is acting exactly the way you feel on the inside about your station here they're acting like you don't belong or that you're a bother, or that you cannot help. And I, man, I really liked how that shined through, especially with Sean being an, an adult. He's a fully grown adult. This isn't some kid who's dealing with some school ground, playground stuff. This is a grown man, which shows that, yeah, people have these issues. So, Angel Man, he pissed off, and uh, Sean's like, look, I just, they're going to Muir Island, that's all it was. You know, you ain't got to be so upset. And again, Angel is, he, he says something about, yeah, authorized personnel only should be answering these phones and, you know, don't worry about this shit. So it, it again, spoke to Sean's insecurities and he tells Banshee, like, you ain't, you ain't it, Chief. You, you ain't, you ain't with us no more. And he's like, oh, you understand that? And, you know, Banshee's like, yeah, I understand. And he's very upset. So again, this is very odd behavior, but then it's like, is it odd behavior or is Sean being sensitive? Which one is it? You know, do we know? So, I want to take a second uh, to rave on the artwork again. <sighs> Joe did his thing. So, the color was good as well. Uh, this is the type of imagery. This is the artwork that is the default for me when I think about the X-Men. It could easily be the X-Men animated series, but that's not it. Whenever I think back on X-Men stories of the past, no matter who drew them, I initially go to this type of art. And it's probably because this was around the time where I was... 
uh, kind of just discovering a lot of things, nerdy stuff, stuff that I like, stuff that I felt like, oh, I'm, I learned about this and now I got to teach my friends about this stuff. So that artwork is like stuck in my head, especially because I believe if I'm not mistaken, I have to think a little bit harder about it, but I think the Phoenix Covenant was the first event that I got on my own, like that I went out and I, I purchased uh, but I'm not entirely sure. I have to think about that, but I think so. So um, when I think of the X-Men, it's this artwork. And so it's it's very good. So we don't have the quite oversized pockets and extreme muscles and everything that you think of with the 90s. But it was very cartoonish, but in a very kind of grounded way. Um, of course, if you don't know, I am a black male. Seeing a lot of these characters on the panel, like Sean, like the way his hair falls and moves and whatnot, things that he's a white Irish guy, but being able to see his hair versus Bishop's versus Thorns, but like a lot of things kind of informed the way that I, I related to artwork. Um, and, and I have my issues, man, as much as I love this series, it is not without its faults. One of which being Monet St. Croix and other characters of color who get drawn or colored in a way that is very ugh, whitewashing or, but I'm going to move past that and keep it light for right now. So we pick back up with Sean in the locker room, getting dressed down in his workout clothes. Now he reflects on this old Irish proverb. I am not going to attempt an Irish accent, but it is, ye can never go home again. So obviously he's upset, he's distraught, he's angry at the way that he's been treated by Storm and Archangel and all of them. So he thinks about this major changes in his life and this all began with his life as an Interpol agent. He resided over the Cassidy Keep. Now the Cassidy Keep, I want you guys to put a pin in that as well. We'll revisit that later on, but remember the Cassidy Keep. Now he reflects on his time as a New York police officer, or detective rather, um, as well as him being a villain back in Tennessee some time ago. All of this happened before he became an X-Man. Uh, and then my understanding is that Sean is about 7 to 10 years older than the rest of the X-Men. He may be a bit older than that. Um, as a kid, I always saw him as the same age. But if we're looking at levels and stages of the mutants at large, we have the Generation X who at this time is the youngest the X-Men themselves, I will put at like mid to late 20s. And I will put Banshee at about late, very late 30s. Not quite 40s yet, but late 30s. Now, outside of the danger room, because he's going to work out, uh, Sean sees that the door is locked. And after checking with the computer to see like who's, who's in there, he sees that it's Jubilee. Now, his issue is, being the adult that he is, why in the hell is this 13-year-old girl in the danger room by herself? That makes a lot of sense. Soon after that, he walks off because he's going to go tell somebody like, you know, whatever. Y'all can say what y'all want. I'm not an X-Men. Be had his attitude. But this, this is ridiculous. And I do like this idea. Um, and I think it would work with any of the X-Men. But I like this idea that Sean is like, out of all the bullshit that I've been through and that y'all put me through, one thing I'm not going to stand for is abuse of a child. Though she's a mutant and she has powers, She's a minor who's not as experienced as the rest of us. Why in the hell would she be in the danger room, a room that is designed to push us to our limits? Why would she be in there unsupervised? Which is a very legitimate concern. Why would you have her in there unsupervised? <laughs> so he walks off and then he sees Psylocke coming out of the professor's uh, ready room. 
Now, I don't know what that is. I don't know what a ready room is. I'd imagine it's a study or something. But this is a place that is only for Charles Xavier. No one else, psychic or not, needs to be in that room. So, Sean ducks back behind a corner and uh, Psylocke, Betsy Braddock, walk past him. So, his concern, this is another red flag that pops up. She is a ninja. She is a psychic. She is a deadly force to be reckoned with, not only physically, but mentally. And the fact that he was able to hide in the shadows without her noticing, that's a red flag. How in the head, without her saying anything, flinching, uh, speaking to him psionically or verbally, that that's a cause for concern. One thing I like about this issue is that with Sean going through these different interactions with people he is not a mutant who has psionic or psych oh, me, psychic powers he's not a, a telepath he doesn't have mental abilities so for him he's doing a lot of detective work i don't know if it was intentionally written that way but that's the way it came off to me and i love that so he's shocked so he walks into the ready room himself and he sees that remy lebeau gambit and lucas bishop are hard at work inside they both say hello and Bishop says to him that they are working on Cerebro and asks if there's something that he needs. So Banshee lies and he says he was looking for Xavier. Since the door was open, he thought he was in. Gavin tells him, no, nah, we're just doing some work on the professor's computer while he's out. Banshee, then he says, yeah, you know, since he started walking again, it's almost impossible to keep track of that man. So Bishop kind of brushes him off. He's like, man he ain't none of my business i'm working on some shit get out of here essentially that's what he says so now that's another red flag like i mean take a shot every time a red flag pops up this episode take a shot god damn it so he walks out you know really comically he's like all right well i'll holler at you man once he gets in the clear he runs off he takes off running and he's trying to calm himself down because again you're in a room you're in a building that used to be home full of at least five to seven super powered individuals they're giving you shit they're being cold shouldered to you they're kicking you out of their space one of them who should have been able to detect you from the time you step foot out of the cab onto the property doesn't flinch when you are hiding from her another forgets that the professor is in a wheelchair and has been since his first appearance back in the 60s jubilees on her own a 13 year old training in a danger room like that there's a lot of red flags there so he runs out and again shout out to the artwork like watching this man move again this is something i feel like you can see this you can see your imagination fills in the blanks looking at these action lines and the perspective and how wildly he's running to wherever so banshee makes his way out once he's out the room he takes off and he arrives at this terminal and he asks the computer to locate Storm. He wants to get in contact with her quickly, tell her what's going on, because apparently Gambit and Bishop may be mind controlled or something. So he says, Computer, locate Storm. Open security channel now. Non-applicable designate. Storm is not currently on the grounds. How is that possible? I just spoke to her like 10 minutes ago. Computer, locate Archangel. Non-applicable designate, Archangel is not currently on the grounds. Locate Bishop, Gambit. Non-applicable. Fuck! Identify all essential personnel on the grounds at this time. 
Designate, Banshee, Access Corridor 12, White Queen, Medical Center, Jubilee, Danger Rome, Sabatooth, Maximum Security Level, no other identifiable life forms on the grounds at this time. Saints preserve us. And that is one of my favorite, all-time favorite scenes in Generation X, period. Like realizing that you've been here with all of these friends in this familiar space, but nothing is quite as it seems. That is frightening as hell. It's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or... Uh, what was it? The Faculty, that movie from the late 90s, early 2000s. Is this whole, I'm here amongst friends, even though things are odd, they're still friends, but are they really friends? So, I also cannot be lost on Sean that all the screaming and hollering that Emma was doing earlier actually had some credence to it. Like, she was actually being tortured or not to say torture but she's actually really in fear for her life which like the, all oh, the guilt and the regret that you must feel that you discovered this but you could have found out sooner so it's very much a i told you so moment and i can certainly see this being played out on screen with like this swelling ominous music building as sean realizes that he is truly the odd man out in the worst possible way my God, this is such a... Uh, okay, so with all of this reflected on experience under his belt, he's a cop, an agent, a villain, and an X-Man. Sean rips off his regular civilian clothes and throws on his combat gear. And uh, he hopes that Angel is nowhere to be found. Because clearly, if these motherfuckers are violent, are they body snatched or whatever, or they're not human, who knows what they're capable of? Do they even have our power set? We don't know. Now, to add another twist in this very horrible plot, he finds something else. All of the electronics in the control room have been taken apart. So, going back to that room with that humongous jumbo screen, Cerebro, and all these other technological goo gadgets and what's it and who's it. So, it makes Sean think like, he's like, man, look, this is not impossible. This would have taken a dozen S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, three weeks of round-the-clock totally gut snatching elaborate system and here i was less than half an hour ago what's more is that the very circuit is exposed each wire carefully placed almost as if this room was being dissected again this is the the horror that you know nothing of like we don't know like you're seeing all the evidence of this horrible thing the suspense is building but you haven't actually seen the thing yet you just are aware of it which makes everything like high intensity like oh my god can you imagine walking into your parents house hanging out with your siblings going to take a bath and then realizing all my siblings should be away at college right now my parents should be at work to go outside and find the all the electronics disassembled laying neatly on the floor all of the clothes uh unthreaded and laid out into patterns like it just to kind of bring the uh, the example down to home like that is who that is terrifying so Banshee uh freaking out you know for lack of a better term so he goes and uh um Beast Hank McCoy pops out and he's like hey man what's up what the fuck you doing so Sean's like ah you know nothing man trying to play it off um and he's like yeah man you know I'm just chilling you know, um, I wanted to make a call to Muir Island, but, you know, uh, speak to Mora, but I can't do that. 
And so Beast is like, yeah, well, maybe you can say goodnight tomorrow. Because uh, that's what Sean wants to tell Moira goodnight. He's like, yeah, I'll set my alarm clock to say goodnight tomorrow. Haha, <laughs> you're so silly. Kind of hamming it up. Then he goes downstairs to the maximum security level, which I'm not sure if it was downstairs. I imagine it was. Um, he starts typing in a code uh, to get to release Sabretooth. Now, Rogue is like, you know, evening, Banshee. What's up, sugar? In a way, now that you know something is off the way it's read, where she would normally have that southern, oh, hey, sugars, or whatever, it's broken up in a way that doesn't seem natural when you read it. So he says, evening, Rogue. It's a shame that such a fine lass like yourself got stuck guarding Sabretooth when you should be enjoying the moonlight stroll with Gambit. Evening, Banshee. Sugar. And it's just that pause that now looking back on it, you're like, oh, yeah, this is this is a bit off. Uh, I don't mind being alone. It is. I'm supposed to be here alone with nobody else around. So he ignores her and starts typing in the code. Uh, I'll be out of your hair in a minute. I was just here giving Sabretooth his daily walk. I've already taken him outside today, Banshee. And I like the expression in Rogue's face that goes from calm in the first panel to a bit like not cautious in the second to downright anger in the next panel. I said I've already attended to the man's needs. There's no reason for you to open his cell at this time. Banshee, are you listening to me? And she grabs his wrist and he says, that I am, darling. And he, <laughs> he shouts at her, now you listen to me. Now, anyone who knows, you know Banshee has a psionic or a sonic scream uh, that allows him to fly. But more importantly, at this point, allows him to attack. And he attacks Rogue. Like, he, he blasts her away. So you see the... Uh, visual of Rogue being disintegrated into this like mechanical bits or whatnot. Uh, he goes into where Sabretooth is, and because uh, he gets the he gets the, the prison open, prison the cage open. He bends down. He's like, "Hey man, you all right? What's going on? We gotta get the fuck up out of here." And so he has to do a emit a a sonic uh, scream, but that's not so high frequency, but just enough to wake. Uh, Sabretooth out of his like sedated slumber or whatnot. So he's the <laughs> he says, mm, I was counting on one of your wrecking things together eventually. Just didn't think it'd be you, Irish. So you got a game plan. <laughs> oh man. So I do like this. Uh, I like these characterization of Sabretooth. I like that these two men who are on the opposite ends of the villain hero uh spectrum have to work together and no sooner that Sabretooth says this but the rogue the robotic rogue leaps at them and Sabretooth tackles the shit out of her now the way this looks Sabretooth is massive I really 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 like the artwork and I can't stress that enough he's massive he's restrained and yet he goes loose buck wild he mollywobs bink binks this motherfucker in the head he destroys this machine and I like the artwork because they show it via shadows on the wall versus the actual physical contact which I don't know if it was like oh this book will be read by kids this is the new generation 
uh, or Comics Code Authority. I don't know what, or maybe it's just the artist. That's how he wanted to depict the violence. But from Gale being uh, murdered to Sabretooth attacking his robot, you get the violence, but you get hints of the violence. You get enough that your imagination fills in the blanks and it isn't too, too gruesome. So then after he's done, Sabretooth asks him, uh, he said, that was fun. Now give me one reason why I shouldn't give you some of the same. And so Banshee says, because the detonators in my hand is hooked to your muzzle, Creed. One wrong move and you've joined your friend there over in the floor. And so <laughs> that's such a interesting thing, especially if you're reading X Comics now, Dawn of X. And uh, you see how Sabretooth has been handled and treated versus some of these very same characters who we see in the book with him now. Man, so Sean uh, thinks about all this pretty much reflecting everything that's been going on. How am I going to get out of this one? And I got two more people to get. So he sends uh, Sabretooth to go get Jubilee and then he goes uh, to pretty much find out what the with the the robots because I don't think they it's stated that this is the phoenix at this point uh, through Banshee's point of view but he uh, <clears throat> excuse me arrives at the security ward um, I'm sorry that's where he met Rogue so he goes <clears throat> to the what is this room um, wherever he saw uh, Gambit and, and Bishop earlier and he's talking to them he sees that they're like bonding with the with the machines this man comes out guns ablazing mainly because what is known is that when fighting this uh this phoenix this robot or whatever you can't use the same move twice if you use your powers they are going to adapt to that and they're going to see that coming that being said he shoots up the place um storm and bobby are disintegrating because of emma frost she uses her powers and she rips them in two that's so oh god I love this artwork. So we see Sabretooth, White Queen, and Jubilee. Jubilee is passed out and in his arms. Uh, she says that's... <coughs> excuse me. So Sabretooth is telling her, like, man, look, we got to get going. Uh, we got to go find Banshee. He wants us to rendezvous elsewhere. What Emma says, in true Emma fashion, is what possible interest would I have in what Banshee wants or does not want? Which, okay, one thing, she's a villain, she's a bad guy, whatever, I get her, whatever. That's, that could be an excuse why she's saying this, but at the same time, I could see the resentment that she would have because I've been telling your stupid ass since you showed up here that these people are trying to kill me and you had to find out the hard way that they are actually trying to kill me, so why the hell should I try to help you? That's, I, that's the way I took it. I know she was the villain, and it's easy to say she's a villain, but I'm taking it more personal. Like, I told you they was trying to kill me. I'm a telepath. I'm a psychic. You need to, you should, you should know better. <laughs> Shit. So he's talking about, man, we ain't talking about your best interest. So pretty much he want to make sure that his head don't explode. So he got, he throws Jubilee over his shoulders and he grabs the White Queen by her wrist and he pulls them to wherever the hell they're supposed to rendezvous at. Now, back at the ready room, the self-destruct sequence has been engaged and it stands at about 30 seconds. Banshee asks Cerebro what computer program was running previously to his arrival. The computer screen displays a short list of new mutants. Monet St. Croix, Everett Thomas, Angelo Espinoza, and Clarice Ferguson. 
Banshee comes to the conclusion that they are trying to go after the children, the new mutants. Not new mutants in the series, but the newer, the newest generation of mutants. And so Banshee asked the computer if the phalanx had time to download this information. Seven seconds. The remaining phalanx enter the room, converging on Banshee. He doesn't get a response from the computer, but from the phalanx. Phalanx Archangel tells him the welfare of the generation next is not of his concern. Psylocke then continues, they will be assimilated once they figure out how to assimilate the mutants. Beast asks that the only way to deal with these troublesome mutants is to terminate them. As if to make good on his statement, the three Phalanx con converge? Attack. <laughs> they move in to kill him. Four seconds. Woo, shit is getting real. Uh, Banshee thanks them for their honesty. Then he jumps through a hole in the floor. He hopes that Charles can forgive him. For what? Destroying his lifetime of information. One second. Escape from the phalanx is... They stop because what? They are exploded. They die, bro. The room goes up in flames. There's a large-ass explosion. Uh, no soon after that, we get Banshee holding Jubilee. And above his head drops Banshee. He slams through the wall. Apparently, we're downstairs in the sewer, the sewer system, subway, whatnot. Now, Banshee tells Sabretooth, look, I sent out a message to Mirror Island about what the fuck was going on here. We got to track down the X-Men. And he asks, you know, what's going on with Jubilee? How she's doing? He's like, she's fine. Why aren't we searching for the X-Men? Because those creatures had files. They had access to all the files filled with untrained new mutants. Men and women we might have contacted eventually Innocent people who know nothing of this. They are the next generation of Homo Superior that we have to find before the Phalanx does. Mm -mm -mm. Talk about a wild ass ride. Now, tell me listeners, are you interested in this new show or not? Was this uh, not an intense ride? Boy, intense don't even... Huh, okay, <laughs> for those of you not familiar with every issue of X-Men, this was a story that you would be into. Let me know, yes or no. Uh, for those of you who want to follow along on this Generation X journey, um, your next uh, required reading will be X-Men issue number 36, where we meet Sync. Now, let me know what you think about this walk down memory lane. Am I doing the series justice? Are you excited to see how this turns out? Do you have any questions for me? It could be about the X-Men, Generation X, mutant stuff as a whole, fan casting, really anything. Uh, email me at carefreeblacknerd at gmail.com. You can also discuss the show on social media. Please use that hashtag SLTMPod on Twitter. My handle is carefreeblurred. Everywhere else it's carefreeblacknerd. Man, y'all, this has been wild as hell uh but send in your questions i'll read them i'll answer them on air anything that you have about the x-men mutants generation x all of that so until next time guys stay carefree stay nerdy stay geeky and pay attention to red flags or else you could be surrounded by the phalanx and not even know it Whew. <laughs> <laughs>